You're listening to Story Power, the podcast dedicated to disruptive storytelling. These are the stories of everyday people changing the world. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Welcome. Drew G.I. Hart is an assistant professor of theology at Messiah University and has 10 years of pastoral experience. He is the program director of Messiah University's Thriving Together, Congregations for Racial Justice program, and co-host of Inverse Podcast. Hart is the author of Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism, and Who Will Be a Witness, Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance. He was the recipient of BCM Peace's 2017 Peacemaker Award, the 2019 W.E.B. Du Bois Award in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and was Elizabethtown College's 2019 Peace Fellow. Drew and his family live in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Now, before we start the interview, I just wanted to give you a fun little backstory here. When I was finally going to launch Story Power Podcast. I started playing around with logo creation. I think I had a fever and I was in bed and I went on Twitter and I jokingly said, you know, to my five people who interact with me here on Twitter, here's a logo for a podcast that I'd like to start. What do you think? And Drew commented on the logo and just said, oh, I'm looking forward to the podcast. And I was like, now, wait a second. The Drew Hart just stopped by my Twitter, little old me, and said he was looking forward to listening to my podcast. And I was like, okay, maybe I'll be cheeky and I'll write back and say, well, when I'm, you know, a big famous podcaster, maybe you'll do me the favor of coming on my show. But I didn't have to do that because then he followed up by saying, and if you ever want me to come on, I'd love to be a guest. And that was honestly like one of a few moments for me that said to me that I was supposed to do this podcast. So I don't know if I've told him that story, but there you go. And here's our interview. Welcome to the show, Drew. Oh, thanks, Jen. I've been looking forward to our conversation together. Yeah, me too. Actually, I will have you start out by just telling us about who you are and how you have come to where you are today. So kind of think of it as your own bio that you get to share with us today. Yeah. Um, so I'm married. I've got three kids. I live on the land of the Susquehannock, which is now um, central Pennsylvania in Harrisburg. That's the capital, small city, majority black and brown city here in central PA. I... Um, at the moment, I teach at Messiah University, so I'm a theology professor. I'm also the new program director for a program we just launched called Thriving Together Congregations for Racial Justice, um, which is working with local congregations around racial justice and kind of race in place kind of stuff. Um, I'm a co-leader for a group here in Harrisburg called Free Together, which is just a network of leaders working towards racial justice, trying to get churches engaged and connect them with organizers and the good work that's already happening around our city. I'm originally from Philly or Norristown in particular. I lived in Norristown for 15 years and uh, West Oak Lane, East Germantown for about eight years. All my dad's family side of his family's from that way. My mom's actually from Jamaica. She moved here when she was 19. Um, so I do have that connection as well. Um, I've got siblings, mostly older, except for one that's nine years younger than me. All of them still live in the Philly area. Let's see. My journey has been interesting in terms of how I got to where I am today. I would say that if I were to pinpoint the most pivotal moment that kind of put me on the trajectory of where I am today, it would have been my time in college. Um, but that would have been the pivotal moment that kind of oriented me. I can't think about what I do today outside of on my time in college. So while a lot of people's story of kind of grappling with race and racism, like a lot of people my age, I hear a lot of people talk about like Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown and things like that. And certainly those were impactful for me, but but my journey um, began, it was more around 2000 to 2004. On one hand, um, I was a biblical studies major in a fairly progressive Christian college in terms of the teachings and the professors themselves. 
I should say department, a fairly progressive department. I the college is complex. Um, but, and so being wrestling with questions around justice and liberative readings and peace and violence, all kind of stuff, being engaged with those things, and also simultaneously uh, grappling with a fairly racist uh, student population, right? Yeah. Um, and trying to make sense of both of those things at the same time. Um, so a lot of people talk about deconstructing and reconstructing. I, it was all happening simultaneously. Um, and I had huge questions when I left, just huge. Um, so I was biblical studies going in and I went into pastoral ministry, but I uh, I was leaving that place with huge theological questions um, that had to be wrestled with in terms of uh, the re- the relationship between racism and white supremacy in the church. That was just huge. I, I had to make sense of this thing that I was, what was going on, right? I couldn't quite put my finger on it at the time, but I knew that there were some serious problems. And it seemed to be in such deep contrast to everything I was learning in the classroom. After that, um, I was a youth pastor in Harrisburg and Allison Hill. It's the poor neighborhood in Allison Hill. I was youth pastor in a, at a working at an after-school program for middle school boys in the city there. Then moved back to Philly, did my MDiv with urban concentration, was back in kind of almost completely Black church circles and Black neighborhood and everything, while Harrisburg was a little bit more multiracial space. Um, Philly, like even my block in Philly was, I would say in the neighborhood was like 98% black, you know, like it's that kind of world. So just versus like where I live now, it's majority, my block is majority black, but it's also multiracial in many ways. And it's a little different. So moving in that space and then taking a turn towards PhD work, which was unanticipated. Um, in many ways, it was my opportunity to, which I already had begun to answer some of my questions, but to answer more intentionally some of the theological yearnings and questions that I was grappling with. And so drawing from which my experience uh, moving in both black church spaces, but also multiracial Anabaptist spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so kind of bringing conversations of those two different traditions together to wrestle with questions around Christendom and colonialism and white supremacy and, and a way forward for the church so yeah, so that was my um, dissertation. I finished that in 2016 and then found myself coming back to Harrisburg again for the second time, teaching now at Messiah and doing the work that I do. So maybe that's the shorthand version. I guess there's always other things you can include, but um, but that's kind of where I am right now. You know, I've listened to you a lot and I've listened to a lot of your interviews and I feel like I was just a little more curious about you personally and what came before and what has influenced and impacted your work. So you've written two books. You've written The Trouble I've Seen and Who Will Be a Witness. Do you want to talk about those just a little bit and briefly introduce people to your books? Yeah, yeah. So my first book, Trouble I've Seen, I was I wrote that while I was a PhD student. I was I always joke and say I was a misbehaving PhD candidate. Finished all my coursework, my two years of coursework. I was, um, I think I was in the midst of studying for comprehensive exams when Michael Brown um, was executed in the streets, right? Okay. And Ferguson was happening. Yep. And, and in some ways dealing with a little bit of a vocational crisis at the moment, because I had not been planning for very long to do this academic stuff, right? I mean, right. that just was not my path. And then suddenly it was my path. And I was thinking like, I, what am I doing? And I had already been doing, so I wasn't at that time, at that moment, I was just beginning to do like more um, getting known for anti-racism stuff some, but I mean, I didn't have any books out. I was blogging a little bit, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it was much more local stuff, Philly, Pennsylvania, Central PA, like that's where I was doing it. But I had been doing the work. I had like tons of stories and ways of talking about it to try to move away from kind of the thin definitions of race and racism that were so popular and try to expand it to systemic and white supremacy rather than just centering white privilege as the framework, all that kind of stuff. Right. So, so when, when everything was going down, I felt like I just have to speak into this because there were just terrible conversations happening among so many Christians. Right. Um, And I felt like I could contribute to it. And I felt like, because I enter into it, not only have I read and engaged like critical race theory and sociology on race, but I also bring a theological perspective to it as well. And I felt like something's missing in the conversation when we don't grapple with some of the theological implications of race and racism. 
And so, yeah. Um, so I would say who will be uh, trouble I've seen is a, uh, is uh, inviting people into anti-racist discipleship. Right. And I think a lot of people notice that uh, my concern isn't only describing race and racism, but it's also trying to hopefully point people towards Jesus and give a new picture of who Jesus is and the way to follow him into the world. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah. And I ask different kinds of questions, epistemological questions, right? Uh, ways of knowing, right? How do we know what we know and how does that shape um, people as they're trying to make decisions about, you know, how to engage our world today? So anyway, that's a big scheme of things. I could get more into it, but it is expanding the conversation and in terms of the thin definitions to a thicker definition, moving towards a racial hierarchy, white supremacist framework, and also taking seriously anti-racist discipleship. Um, And so my second book, Who Will Be a Witness, in many ways came out of me doing work around trouble I've seen. I was actually engaging congregations, right, Um, around trouble I've seen. I was actually really grateful for great responses to the book. Um, and yet one of the things I did hear in response, you know, we traveling around the country and people were like, Hey, Drew, like, all right, sounds like you want us to engage in racial justice work, right? Yes. Not to just do book studies and talk. Like, what does this mean? What does this look like? Right. And so after I heard this a couple of times, I was like, all right, you know, obviously you can't take for granted. Like, I think some people are thinking like, you know, that means we're just going to, you know, uh, go vote once a year or whatever, you know, like that, that's that's the limits of their imagination for what we could do in response to um, what I was describing. And so then I thought, all right, I, at least I have some experience with some organizing work now and collaborating with other folks doing good work. And so I can um, help people think through this. And I've read some pretty helpful stuff around social change work. And, and so I have some theory alongside of it. But then, of course, I was like, well, if if that's all they need, I could just point them to some other resources, right? Because right. <laughs> people have written on social change and stuff in a whole variety of ways. And so I don't necessarily need to write only for that purpose. And so I thought, let me think, what 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 do churches really need to think about and think through as they're kind of moving from, you know, understanding racism to thinking about how do I get engaged in the world um, in response to these systems and structures of oppression? And so I thought that the big things that I wanted to make sure I addressed, one was um, uh, uh, unveiling the the revolutionary and radical and subversive Jesus Christ, right? Um, that people needed to see Jesus anew. Um, and so that was really important for me. Next was that we had to be extremely honest about the the legacy of the church, the mangled witness of the church. I think there's just some naivete around the church's history. And so people don't realize just how devastating some of the church history is. Um, yes. And that shaped so much of our present realities, right? Especially it relates to, again, Christendom and colonialism. Um, so I wanted to address that. And in some ways, it's also when I do that as a side note, if there's, I don't know if there's any Anabaptists listening, but it's also pushback against Anabaptists and how they do their history, which falls short of, they talk about Constantine and Christendom, and they say nothing about colonialism, right? And white supremacy, mm-hmm which in some ways exposes some of their own blind spots for many white Anabaptists. Um, so there's that and think about the black prophetic tradition, stuff like that. Also think about the church. What does it mean to be the church, to, to name power dynamics, right? To, to wrestle with um, what does it mean to be community? What does it mean to worship a God of justice, a liberating God? And how does that shape who we are in the world, right? Um and then ultimately, like, I do get to, the, you know, the very concrete stuff of like social change, right? Um, nonviolence theory, um, movement theory, organizing theory, telling personal stories as it relates to all of that. Even thinking a little bit about electoral politics and how do we think about that. Um, so just giving some really helpful ways to think through how to engage in our society in faithful ways as the church on the grounds at the grassroots level um, with a faithful public prophetic witness in the public square. Um, And then, of course, at the end, I end with the challenge. The challenge for me, just as much as it is to everyone else, which is what does it mean um, to love our neighbor and to allow that to be our motivation and to do that without having gaps, right, where some people we can be socialized to not see their humanity and their value and that they are made in the image of God. And so how do we do that work? Um, which I think is the challenge for everyone, uh, not just conservatives, but progressives, everyone for us to do that hard work of loving others the way that God invites us to love. 
I have to say, so I'm really glad that you wrote Who Will Be a Witness and that you didn't just decide that, oh, I'll tell people what books to read because yeah. I haven't read a book like yours before. And for me, as somebody who is not within the academic world, I had been kind of floundering for years and years when I started deconstructing from the institutional church. I didn't even understand the terminology. The terminology wasn't as popular then. This was about, I don't know, 10 years ago. Yeah. And it's no surprise looking back that that is really when my journey toward um, pursuing racial justice and learning and listening took off. And I didn't understand it at that point either. Like I didn't understand why when I had deconstructed from the institutional church, I started stepping into spaces and doing justice work and encountering other people who happened to also be followers of Jesus who had also left the institutional church. And so for me, like for several years, I naively tried to push into conversations with people within the church about racial justice. To me, I thought, surely Jesus loves justice. This makes sense. Christians right. are going to want to be on board with this, you know, and racial reconciliation and la, 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 and all of this. And I got to a point, actually, where I became so angry and disillusioned by the people that I was encountering within the evangelical church. And I would say now I have language for it. They were white evangelicals coming from a white evangelical framework. I didn't yeah. understand it, though. All I understood is that there were some serious gaps between what I was reading in scripture, who I knew Jesus to be, and what I was seeing in the church, which is part right. of the reason that I actually left the church, um, it, it, the institutional body of the church. Right. So when I got my hands on Who Will Be a Witness and I started reading it, and I know I've told you this a number of times and written about it, but it really was like I was coming home to something that I didn't even know was home and, and just able to breathe for the first time and to read things that resonated with me on a deep, just spiritual level, philosophical level. So thank you for that, because I feel like it is such a powerful work. And there are a couple of things I would love to kind of hear more about yeah. from you. You know, it's like you did an amazing job just now kind of going through your book from A to Z in a sense, like laying out a framework for what people are going to read and learn when they buy this book. And those of you listening, buy this book because it is really, really important. Um, but two things I'd love to talk about, like I've really been sitting with chapter three yeah, and I go back to it a lot. So chapter three is titled The Supremacist Captivity of the Church. And the very first line, you say, Christianity supremacy birthed white supremacy into our world and corrupted our discipleship to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And now that I know, I know. And I'm just like, yes. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. And that's a loaded sentence, right? There's a lot of stuff going on in that sentence. Um, one is that there's a little bit of a critique of the the church is merely complicit in racism. There's it's so much more than that, right? Because it makes it sound like we just, oh, we got involved in it. No, it's more than that, right? right? The church birthed it. This is, to understand white supremacy from a historical standpoint, it's to understand it's first and foremost a theological disease, a theological imagination that birthed out of the church where Christianity gets conflated with Western Christianity that gets conflated with whiteness over time, right? Um, so to understand that, um, and to then name the history, the flow of what happens, right? Which is why, again, the critique of, uh, I'd say, again, anyone that engages in Christendom and uses the language of Constantinian Christianity, they stop short and they act like that was the only problem when, I mean, that is a significance, right? We can't ignore. And I think that oh, laid sure. the foundation. When you, when you read about the rise of Western Christendom, um, you you begin to see how things certainly that that it makes a lot of sense. It fills in a lot of gaps when you learn some of that history. But there's so much more. Once you hit that 15th century, right? Um, and you see Portugal engaging in slavery, right? As Christian West, they see themselves, they, they see themselves as Christians engaging in slavery, uh, af, in, enslaving and pillaging black people, right? Although they wouldn't have necessarily been called black yet, but African people nonetheless. And then immediately afterwards, 
there's a papal bull giving theological permission for that work, right? Um, so deeply theological in terms of the conquest, the pillaging, the plundering, right? The exploitation that's going on from the very beginning, the, the church is doing biblical and theological work, the heavy lifting to justify um, that kind of work. And then, then comes Columbus, right? And after that, and then there's more theological work that's done immediately after that to justify it. So the church is coming behind the exploitation and justifying it theologically um, and giving permission, giving its blessings, right, to engage in that. And, and just so we don't try to put all the blame on the Catholic Church, everyone engaged in this, right? All the, or the majority of the Protestant tradition engaged in this as well. Um, and so, yeah, so me naming that then is in some ways a shorthand for that history. Um, but then it's also to say that it has shaped our imagination for what it means to be followers of Jesus. Or better yet, we could say it shaped our imagination where we're not even thinking about following Jesus, right? Where you can claim Jesus um, without the substance of the particularity of his life and teachings, right? That's that's what's, um, I tell my students, I joke with them all the time, I say, you know, it's the, it's the cradle to the cross jump, right? Love baby Jesus and Jesus died for me, right? That's what most people and everything else gets erased, right? Um, has no substance. The majority of the Jesus story has no substantive meaning, even though that's where most of the ethical import is, right? That's where Jesus is actually inviting us to love our neighbors. That's where Jesus is modeling and teaching us what it means to prioritize the least, last, and lost in the world, right? The poor, the Samaritans, the vulnerable women, those most stigmatized in society. All of that gets erased um, through the history of Christendom and colonialism, erased or deeply mangled and distorted in such ways that it reimagines humanity revolving around whiteness, right? And so, um, yeah, there's so much there in that little bit. of, and, and so hopefully my, hopefully even that one sentence invites people to think, you know, um, what would it mean then to recover a faithful witness of following Jesus? Um, which hopefully the early two chapters in conversation with that can open people up to Jesus was not, you know, uh, neutral on these issues. Um, he was quite, uh, uh, deliberate, intentional and, in fact, you could say almost aggressively so in terms of taking a stand on on the issues and the challenges and those who were most vulnerable in his own day. There is another part of chapter three that I'd like to read. Um, and this is probably my favorite part. And I read this to Letty Shoemate when I interviewed her the other day. Like I read this and not coming from academia and not having this understanding of history in the church specifically, like the thing that I think about is how do people get this information? How do we help them understand and learn where the, like the truth of, of what is behind so much of this? Um, so you say it really well on page 107. You say, to get a better handle on the captivity of the church to supremacist identities, mindsets, and ways of living, we need to know our past. The past is never just in the past. It lives on with us. It returns and remains with us in a variety of ways. It is most dangerous when it binds its victims without them knowing it. When we ignore the inertia of what has come before us, we are unable to resist history from puppeting us. We dance and jump on command without realizing why. And to me, that is just like, that has been my experience throughout my entire faith journey from 25 to probably 38, in a sense, not understanding any of this and not understanding that there was this inertia and this thing moving us um, and puppeting us. And so I just think about like, I have such respect for the fact that you work within the church you know, you were talking about how you, you work to connect churches with organizers. And I'm fascinated with the fact that you do that and that churches are even receptive to that because by and large, the spaces that I've been going into to try to speak to and to try to get them to even listen, they, they just seem absolutely impenetrable. What is your experience in connecting churches with organizations and in moving this conversation of racial justice forward instead of this um, well-meaning, whitewashed, harmful concept of like racial reconciliation? Yeah. So to be honest, it hasn't all been roses, right? Um, 
Um, I mean, there. So we, there's we've had a mix of experiences here, certainly in our city. I mean, there are folks that were were and are ready to go, right? Um, and we also have others that you know we can't get to the table. Even some folks who I think theoretically, even pastors who believe more and still just can't make the effort to actually collaborate for justice, right? They just won't be prioritized, and so it's tough. Word. Yeah, it's it's tough. So there's a range. Um, it's a, I just got an email a couple of weeks ago. No, so there's two different things I'm working on, right? So I'm working on, uh, uh, there's locally, and it's just all voluntary based. I'm a co-leader for a group that's been around for a few years called Free Together. And then I'm working locally through um, through the Institution of Messiah, through a, a Lilly Grant funded thing. So we've got resources and that's called Thriving Together. And what's interesting, so in terms of just bringing people together, it's it's the folks that already are on board that we've been able to really get. And we're trying to get creative on the ground for free together in terms of how can we get more people on the ground working and collaborating, right? So that's yeah. that's some of the work. Um, thriving together, what is fascinating, of course, they hear, you know, the big institution, my name's attached to it, there's money behind it. So now we've got lots of churches applying <laughs> to, to be at this table. <laughs> um, so it's just fascinating how that works out um, in terms of just what what attracts leaders and pastors. Um, I mean, hopefully the work that we do with Thriving Together will feed into the fact that there will be more folks at the end of it that will want to do the kind of work that we're doing in Free Together, right? Um, the actual organizing. Uh, but it's but there's some learning that that's going to happen. There's going to be, I mean, we're going to do race and place learning, uh, help them understand our region. How did, you know, I think a lot of the white folks in, in my community, in this area, region, like central PA, just imagine that somehow, oops, black people just suddenly found themselves lumped together in poor black and brown spaces, you know, like with no historical memory. They don't know nothing about redlining. They know nothing about the restricted deeds and covenants, which we know for fact, because we have students who did some research, got into the archives, found the restricted deeds. One one neighborhood on the West Shore, that's the predominantly white neighborhood, they found about a third of the homes had racially restricted deeds on them, right? Oh, about a third yeah. of the homes. But nobody, you know, that memory is just gone. So nobody thinks, you know, uh, the Capitol building in Harrisburg, right? actually uh, displaced a black community that used to live there. They actually displaced it so they could build the Capitol complex. Nobody remembers this. Here in central PA, not too far from here is Carlisle and the famous Carlisle boarding school, right? Um, but nobody talks about that. There's all kinds of stuff going on that, that, that should be constant reminders that the past lives on and, and is shaping our present. That the zip codes that were redlined in Harrisburg those neighborhoods today are disproportionately poor, right? These are not coincidences, right? Um, this was designed, structured, and organized. How do we um, tell these stories? And so, yeah, there's there's folks coming to the table willingly. There's some folks we've, you know, um, lured in with with the you know big names of you know money and funding right. and things like that. Um, and so it's more formal. But um, but th that's the work. Is how do we? I mean, I, I posted the other day and I said, you know, if like some churches need to just pack up, right? That's why I said on Facebook. Like it's time for some churches just to pack up because if they're producing folks that can go out uh, and hunt Asian American women, right? Um, like that's the byproduct of them having been participating in that worshiping community. That's the fruit. Um, then it's time to pack up because the the facts are are that non. Christian white people are less racist. Not saying they're not racist, but less racist than white Christian people on average. There are some that break the mold, but the average, that's the case, right? That that's what the data shows. Um, that to be white and Christian makes it more likely to be racist. Um, so while black Christian, usually it means the opposite for white Christians, that's often the opposite. And so that's I, I, that's in Robert Jones's, you know, white too long. I mean, he 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 some of his. Um, data that he gives. And so I think that that's really helpful to think about some of the challenges that we face and why there's so much resistance, why people 
I want to talk to call everybody Marxists and stuff when you start talking about um, the past and the present realities. Oh my goodness. I was a Marxist for years before I actually knew what Marxism was. Like, and I'm I, pretty sure the people who've called me that still don't, don't know, know what Marxism is. They don't know is. what it is. But right. let's talk about that for a minute because it is such a hot issue. And I yeah. love, like, I, I'm stuck in this tension of wanting to just turn my back and go forward in collective movement with people who are like-minded and do the work and experience this kingdom living that is uh, possible in community with people. And at the same time, I know that as a person who is white, it is also my work to go and get my people. And so I vacillate, you know, between these things. Um, And, and so I hesitate sometimes to give attention to certain people or platforms or conversations that are being had where it is so clear that they are not interested in really any kind of good faith dialogue on these topics. And at the same time, I see where people who are well-meaning and not very informed are being influenced by these people and these platforms. So I feel like reluctantly, we have to address some of these things. And I know that there's more and more conversation about this. But oh my gosh, with this this CRT boogeyman, and now I just saw the other day, a la like Neil Shenvey's crew, um social justice Christianity. So now there's SJC. So it's like these, you know, derogatory terms, CRT, SJC. We've got to watch out for this stuff. This is the downfall of Christianity. And it's like, yeah, it's the downfall of white supremacy. And so, right. But I would love to hear from you. Just like, what do you think about this conversation? And what would you say to people who are like, well, is CRT antithetical to the gospel? Do I need to be worried about this? I know that's a huge question, right? But feel free to take it however you want to take it. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, it's the fact of the matter, it's an academic discipline. It's people who are studying how race and racism has played out in the past and present. That's all it is, right? Um so is it an explicitly Christian or non-Christian thing? It's neither. In fact, there are some Christians who are engaging in it and there are non-Christians. And it's not a singular thing either. It's a conversation, right? It's an academic discipline. There are people who who come and they gather, they do papers, they're reviewed, people argue and debate and they nuance and they um and so um I think that it gets lost that it there's this like weird idea that it's this like anti-Christian thing that's floating out there. Um, there's many folks who are writing explicitly from a Christian perspective on these things. In fact, Christians have, you could argue that without black Christians, there would be no fields called critical race theory. Now, I will say this. I do have, I would say my critique, I do have a critique, right? Which is, I do think that um, that in general, critical race theory has not taken seriously the role that Christianity has played to enough degree, right? Um, they don't see the, hilo- the theological heresy that developed. So a lot of folks are not naming that. So there's actually something deeply theological about the problem that's actually being ignored, I think, in so many critical race theory conversations around race and racism. It's seen purely as a sociological problem when I think it is so much more than that. Um, so anyway, so I would say I, it's not that I, we can have critiques, but I've also learned deeply from I mean, in terms of just the analysis, understanding systems and structures and policies, thinking about the different levels in terms of not only individual, interpersonal, communal, systemic, um, and even the cultural and myth level, right, in terms of the ways that race plays out in our society and in our world and shapes us in a whole variety of ways. I think that that those things are really helpful um, to be think intersectionally, to understand the different uh, interlocking forms of oppression, how we navigate those and how do we navigate them faithfully. I think these are all important. Um, and I don't think you have to, in fact, you don't have to abandon Jesus. You don't have to abandon the the gospel. You don't have to abandon God's good news of God's reign on earth to to engage critically in a conversation and learn from those things. Like you would anything, right? Like I don't need to abandon you know, Jesus to when I read the manual for a toaster oven, right, to figure out how to make it work. Like, I, you know, I don't know. Is it explicitly Christian? No, but right. it's helpful for me to get my, 
bread toasted. I don't know. You know, so it, the question is, what does it do? And, and is it helpful in that work? And I think, um, so I think, and, and Christians have always, from the very beginning, have engaged. In fact, that's some of the tension, right, is to what degree. I mean, there are Christians on all sides. You think about very early on, you have like Tertullian on one side and Origen, if we're going to put them as opposites, right? Tertullian's like, all right, what does, you know, Athens have to do? You know, like he, he disregards all the philosophical thought. Origen is deeply philosophical. And there's mistakes that are made in terms of like a Justin Martyr philosophical, in some ways, beginning to sever uh, Christianity from its Jewishness, right? There's some problems. So you, there's some warnings and things that you can learn from that along the way. But Christianity has always engaged meaningfully in dialogue with its different contexts and situations that it found itself in throughout Christian history. Um, so the question for me is more, how do I do it faithfully? Not if I should do it, but what does it look like to do it well? Um, and so to the degree that it enfolds to the work of God's care for justice and deliverance and for people, right? For those in the edges, cracks, and margins of society, which I think it deeply does, certainly much more than... The, the sad part is that, that critical race theory is doing that work more than most Christians are. Most Christians are actually going in the opposite direction. So they're actually the antichrist in terms of the actual work, the fruit is actually not lining up with uh, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God's justice, right? Um, that those things just don't align. And so, uh, and the joke that me, the running joke for me and Jared, uh, he, my co-hosts for Inverse Podcast, we always joke about, you know, what's the opposite of that, right? Which would be, if not critical race theory, it's uncritical race theory, right? Which is, well, that has not been working very well. That uncritical race theory that white Christians used for centuries helped to bolster, you know, racism. It helped to bolster Jim Crow and certainly today uh, mass incarceration, ongoing police brutality, inequities and disparities in education and healthcare and so on, right? Um, so if uncritical race theory is, is not working, then let's try maybe for the first time actually using our brains and thinking about these things. And if anything, instead of Christians entering out, if they're worried about watering down the gospel, then let's enter into the conversations and see um, see what it means to keep Christ preeminent in the midst of that, rather than running away from the conversation altogether, which I think actually bears uh, a sign that it's not really about caring about Christ, but it's actually just right. protecting uh, white supremacy itself. Yeah, so you may have already kind of answered this, but the question I have is just, what is with the division that we see right now? What what would you say is the cause of or the reason behind this growing divide and, and severing between certain Christian groups over the issue of justice? Yeah. I mean, it, I think on one hand, there's so at the heart of it, there's deep, deep denial, right? and an internalizing of another narrative. I mean, that's what's at really at stake is what's the narrative that people are living by? So if your narrative is American exceptionalism, right? Yeah. If, your America, if your narrative is that, that God's hand has been especially on uh, white America, they don't say, they just say America, but they mean white America, right? Because they certainly don't see um, everybody, anybody else is blessed. So if that has been, if that's the manifestation and that's the story, then you can't actually grapple with indigenous genocide, right? And forcible removal from their, their land. You can't actually grapple with the realities of slavery for centuries and ongoing neo-forms of slavery and lynchings and so forth up to the present day. Um, so I think that what really is, uh, provoking the divide is that people actually aren't actually rooted in Israel's story culminating in Jesus's story. Because if you were, you'd have to, you couldn't be grappling with that story and not grapple then with uh, deep dispo dis disproportionate suffering in our world. Like you can't, it, you can't grapple with Israel's story in any kind of meaningful way. Not the superficial, like, you know, oh, God is angry in the Old Testament. That's, that's bad readings. Israel's story roots you to the poor, right, and the foreigner and, and the widow in significant ways and calls you to do justice, right? I mean, that's the culmination. It's, there's a powerful conversation happening in the Old Testament. How do you enter that in any kind of meaningful way 
and not uh, be oriented and sensitive to justice and peace and to those who are most vulnerable in your communities? And how does that not become extremely clear in the person of Jesus Christ, who takes sides in the debates, right, of the Old Testament and says, this is the final revelation. This is the clearest revelation of who God is. And it's, you know, the same thing as the uh, as the prophets said, right? And the prophets said, do justice and love mercy while humbly with your God. And Jesus, he he goes at the religious leaders and says, look, you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, but neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness, right? Sounds just like the prophets all over again. Um, so he he takes sides in the in the uh, ancient uh, debates of, of Israel's story, right? And helps us read and understand that. How? So I don't know. I mean, you can only get there if you've got another Jesus and if you've got another story that you're oriented around, right? And and there is, right? There's a whitened Jesus that was yes. concocted and projected and developed and matured over the years. And he became a, a mascot for the status quo. And so like, that is the fundamental problem. And our my ancestors saw it, right? Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth, they named that, right? that these two Jesuses are incompatible with one another. Um, this is not just a matter of different angles. Not, yeah, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They have different angles and aspects, and there's some tension there that we got to wrestle with, right? How do we hold the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Mark together, right? It's one that seems so deeply theological and divine, and Jesus seems a little out of touch with Mark, very human, right? How, how, all right, that's that's a healthy tension there that we can, but that's not what we're talking about here. These are incompatible. They're actually at war with one another. Yes. One is is pro-guns and pro-death, pro-oppression and apathy and disregard for those who are most vulnerable. And that's not what we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We just find a different story altogether that actually invites us to enfold all of our stories and to redeem them and transform them in the way of Jesus Christ. All right, I'm done. No. <laughs> oh, yeah. So in your book, you talk about um, movement work and you give really practical ways to move from knowledge into embodiment. Do you think that we are in a new civil rights time, in a new era? Because a lot of people talk about that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we absolutely are. Um, in fact, I would nuance and just say it has never ended, right? Mm. That's it, a continuous freedom struggle that has never ended. But I do think to say, so that's like, it's the difference between um, saying, so yes, it's a, it's kind of like we're in a civil rights moment in the same way that the 50s and 60s, right? We're in a civil rights moment. But that struggle had always existed. It's just that it had I'll use the analogy that of uh, Vincent Harding. His, he's got a great book called There is a River. It's really uh, a book um, talking about slavery from the beginning of slavery up to the other. But it's about it's not just about black people suffering. It's about black resistance to slavery and all the different ways that they resisted from 1619 up to 1865. Right. But he gives this analogy of the river in the in his intro where he describes it as this river that's flowing and sometimes it's like a trickle and other times it's like rushing through and, you know, but it's always been there and it always, and in some ways that's, I think really, um, so on one hand, we're a part of this thing that's always been around. There's always been people at work, right? Even when in the, you know, early 2000s that everyone was on their multiculturalism, you know, thing and stuff like that. And people were still on the ground doing the work, right? Um, and yet there's something distinct that we want to name about what's happening right at this moment. And I think that this is important um, to name that. So in the same way that we'd say the civil rights movement of the fifties and sixties, there's something unique, uh, another iteration that's much more powerful and, and brought together is more solidarity and struggle and a whole range of different ways that it's being expressed um, throughout our society um, and providing healthy debate about our way forward. Right. I think all of that is happening um, uniquely in our moment today that we'd have to compare um, to the significance of the abolitionist movements as well as the civil rights movement. Yeah. 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 It's interesting to just look at the conversations that are taking place now with the internet, the way that it is. And I mean, for myself, the work that I do, the connections that I've made with people and, and I hold this tension again of being really grateful for social media 
and also really hating social media. It's that double-edged sword. But I think it has connected people in a way that, that we just couldn't connect before. And to learn about these stories and histories and connect with people from different faith traditions and, and just get insights into the history of the church, those are a lot of new conversations for a lot of people. You talk a lot about prophetic imagination, and I have really felt that um, over the years, particularly the last few years, just thinking about the, and, and when you talk about like the Jesus, the two Jesus at war, right? The white Jesus and the real Jesus. I also think of like the prophets at war in a sense as well, because you've seen this movement of prophets that came around Donald Trump and, and did all of this prophesying that he was like the king and he was going to be the one. And then, um, on the other side, you have these prophetic voices. And I just think it's so interesting the way we have created this cult of personality. And by we, I'm going to say like white evangelicalism um, around these prophets and stuff. Because when I think about the prophets in the Old Testament, when I think about, um, you know, John the Baptist eating locusts and, and wearing animal fur and, and basically being the equivalent of some freak of nature, you know, and then looking at what people have propped up as prophetic voices. So with regard to prophetic imagination, what do you see for the future of the church today and what is happening? Yeah. I mean, I think some of it is understand. I mean, it's so, I, I, we would just, in my class, I was just having conversations around the book of Revelation um, with my students who, you know, they were all um, taught to read that book in terms of predictions. And like, it's like a big Da Vinci Code chase, right? You know, and you, know, you got to decode everything and stuff. And, 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 and in some ways taught to like, to have the height of arrogance, right? To imagine that this book was written centering us and our time and our moments in U.S. politics and stuff, right? Like, I mean, just the kind of height of arrogance, right? right. Um, rather than that this was a book that was written that would have been understood by its under by its original audience because it had something to say about that world under Rome that they were living in, right? right. Um, and, and the challenges that they were facing under Rome to engage in the, participate in the imperial cult, to engage in the economic life there, um, and that that the book of Revelation was unveiling um, the blasphemy of the empire, right, uh, was unveiling the complicity and offers a devastating critique. I mean, you can't read Revelation chapter 13 and chapter 18 without just seeing just the, a devastating critique and an invitation then for the church to remain faithful on the ground moving forward, right? And it's interesting that the book of Revelation also, um, it doesn't just like it, it identifies itself. I mean, it says it's a letter. It says it's uh, apocalypse revelation, right? And it says that it's prophecy. But people hear prophecy again, and we think uh, foretelling rather than forthtelling, right? And so what, what we find there, I think, is in some ways what we need in the life of the church, right? An ability to unveil what's actually happening in our in our world in our society the evil the blast the revelation 18 the the complicity of i mean it's fascinating in in 18 when it, it makes its economic critique and it even names the selling of human people right in that list of things that were be that they're being condemned for um so how do we unveil the exploitations the wealth disparities the commercial flow and currents of our society that continue to press down on impoverished people in their communities. Um, and I think that, I mean, you mentioned John the Baptist. I mean, what's fascinating, you read Luke's account of John the Baptist, a deep and devastating economic critique, right? Yeah. Um, in fact, his thing is, look, redistribution of wealth, right? You got two, you don't need both. <laughs> Give one away, right? I mean, it's very clear. And it flows with the rest of the gospel of Luke in terms of the kind of economic critique that is consistent, right? Around redistribution of wealth, and reparations, right? Um, these are things that happen in Jubilee uh, for the the message, the gospel message of Jesus in the gospel of Luke. Um, so that kind of imagination, that kind of prophetic imagination is the only faithful way to move forward in in empire. I mean, I think if, if the book of Revelation is going to have meaning for today without taking that Da Vinci Code chase, right? And imagining it as coding everything, but rather it's symbols, that that unveil empire and the ways of empire 
and invites us to resist and remain faithful on the ground and even to accept the consequences of such resistance, right? If that's what it's actually doing, which I, I don't, I, the only way to not read it that way is to be, again, to, to, to be, to want to dismiss and water down the deep critiques of the prophetic critiques of empire in our own lives and our own complicity in them. Um, like that's the kind of way, I mean, do we have the capacity to, to envision God's dream for us to name the idolatries and injustices of our own society and to form a people capable of resisting and struggling against these systems and structures and oppressions that are destroying people's lives, right? That are just death dealing. Um, and to imagine that there's a better way forward, right? I mean, I think that the end, I know there's different folks who have understandings around the end. Is it a future thing or a present thing? That's, we can wrestle with that another day, but either way, it's an invitation to a different kind of community on the ground um, that's outside where suffering and 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 injustice are are ended. They're abolished in this the life of this community, right? How do we participate in that? How do we seek after that? How do we hunger and thirst for that? Collaborate and build and struggle for that new world. Um, I think that that's something that we ought to be invited for. So for me, I mean, that's one way to inter- answer that question, right? In terms of yeah. prophetic imagination is to be seeking on the ground, but it, it can't do it without being honest about the imperial forces and evil, real evil in our world that are death dealing and harming um, people and causing disproportionate suffering in our world. Yeah, that's good. And that's something like for me, just waking up and realizing, and I've said more and more to my husband lately, I'm like, how do, how do you feel about the fact that we've essentially like been in a cult? Like that's hmm. what it feels like when when even deeper levels of deconstruction and deprogramming have been happening for me and reading like M. Sean Copeland's book and realizing that, you know, like the the Christianity that I clung to and grew up in was buddy Jesus. It was Jesus risen from the cross. And, yeah. and, and just the way that we do not enter into and cannot enter into well, we can, but but it's very difficult for people to enter into grief. It's very difficult to enter into lamentation. And when you don't have an understanding of the cross and you don't have an understanding of Jesus crucified, like uh, I just I have so appreciated the the richness and the deepening of my my faith and understanding through just reading this book. Um, that's been really profound. Uh, but I think this would be a good time to go into the podcast and ask you about Inverse Podcast and um, have you tell us a little bit about the podcast, the community. When did you start the podcast and, and what is it about? Yeah, so I'm a co-host with my friend Jared McKenna, who is from Australia. And so probably one of the first things people will realize is that it's a global conversation that we're having, um, which is kind of unique. And so we literally, at least at this moment, since you know, the U.S., we suck. So we have daylight savings time and all that. But right now we're exactly 12 hours apart. And so, yeah, we invite really fascinating guests to come on. Um, typically, most of our guests are invited to come and to share um, a passage with them that they find has the potential to turn our world upside down. Right. And so we we uh, invite them to tell their story, to learn about how they read scripture, how, what kind of experiences, whether it was oppressive or liberative and and then we just kind of have conversation around text and then go from there, wherever, right? It's just been a lot of fun to invite people in um, into that. Um, but the other thing that not everyone is aware of is there is behind that, there is this community that has birthed and we're not always good at talking about it. It's just kind of this little almost underground thing that's happening. But um, but it's it's been a really neat thing. And so I guess, I don't even know when. So I've been... Uh, part of the podcast for about a year, a little over a year now. Mm -hmm. Um, Jared was doing it um, prior to that and invited me in around, I guess, I I guess this was around when the pandemic started or something. I don't even remember exactly how it started exactly. Interesting. Yeah. So we had been friends for a while and then um, he he reached out to see if I would be interested in joining him. And so it's it's been taken off since then. It's been really good. Um, The community, we, it's now known as Subversive Seminary. That's kind of the name that has kind of been coined. I love um, it. Yeah. 
And so we we started off actually reading Trouble I've Seen. Um, that was the first book. And then we did Who Will Be a Witness. And then we did Jesus and the Disinherited. And then we just recently did the book that you were just mentioning, right? M. Sean Copeland's Knowing Christ Crucified. And so, yeah, it's it's a space where it's not what many people are expecting. Many folks are coming thinking that they're going to just have like me and Jared just, you know, going off riffing like we might normally do. Um, but that's not really what we wanted for this space. We wanted it to not be just merely about us and our personalities, but really creating actual authentic community creating space for people to listen and listen to other stories and to be transformed by hearing other people to actually value what other people say and not just what we say. Um, and to even create practices within the life of it. And, you know, we're always adjusting as we go, but one of the things that we really believe is that, you know, we've got to put into practice the idea that the first are last and the last are first. Um, so how do we invite, you know, those that have been, um, taught, you know, that they have nothing to say. How do we invite them and create space, right? It has to be created. It has to be intentional um, so that uh, those voices are prioritized and that others that are typically wanting to take up all the space, right? How do we invite them to step back? And so we put practices in place um, to actually uh, foster all of those things. And so it's been beautiful space um, in, in many ways for a lot of folks. We weren't trying to create church per se. Some people respond like i mean i'm taking prayer requests throughout the week um calls and you know we're we've had communion uh, multiple times yes. on the fly in that yes. space right now we're seeing um really beautiful examples of giving receiving sharing resources caring for another as people are in need um so there's things manifesting and i think that what a lot of folks are finding contagious along with just the opportunity to read along with others from all around the world, um, but also to actually see community live out, right, what we believe and not just talk about it. And so it's strange, I think, that for some, they're seeing it more uh, enfleshed on a Zoom community than they're seeing it yeah. enfleshed in actual local communities. And so, yeah, yeah um, so that's a, a gist, I guess, of, of what it is. And so we're looking forward. Next, we're going to, we've noticed that in our community, there's been... Um, a lot of conversations around atonement and how people understand the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection. And in many ways, there's a lot of inherited uh, ideas around God and God taking out God's wrath on Jesus that I think are dangerous and harmful and actually encourage retributive and punitive models that people then go out and live out in other ways. And there are both ancient and newer ways to understand that that are actually much more restorative and gracious and actually look like Jesus, right? That, that God actually looks like Jesus. And there's better ways to understand that than some of the models that, that developed over time. And that are not the ancient traditions, right? When you think about penal substitutionary atonement and satisfaction, all this stuff, um, these aren't the oldest ancient ways of talking about um, atonement, but a lot of people take it for granted because it's been around for a very long time. It's been right. several centuries now that they've been around. And so we're going to be reading, uh, J. Denny Weaver's Nonviolent Atonement um, in the community, but we're also going to be inviting other folks on the podcast um, for even broader range of perspectives around atonements and how people understand what the gospel is and how Jesus saves. And so we're really excited about that as well. I'm excited too. And this is where I'm going to plug and say that you really should join the Inverse Podcast Community's Patreon community. So I'm just going to say, yeah. Um, you, and, good thing you said it. Cause you know, I, I never, did, I mean, I was going to be like, Hey it. Drew, you know, like, do you have a Patreon community? But in all honesty, like it is, it is my favorite Patreon community and I love so many of you. So if you're listening and I'm part of your Patreon community, I love you too. But, um, this is just different. It's very different and I appreciate it a lot. So before we close out, uh, I wanted to ask you just a couple of questions. Who has had the greatest theological impact on you? Yeah, um, it probably would be James Cone. Uh, that's probably where I would go. Um, James Cone. So immediately after I graduated from Masai University for undergrad, I grabbed uh, Cone's God of the Oppressed. That was my first um, Cone book was God of the Oppressed. And I've read that since like many times over. And probably at least once a year, I reread it, right? Um, just a powerful, powerful text. Um, to be fair, I, I always had it in conversation with some Anabaptists. 
And so it was this kind of fruitful conversation that's been ongoing. But but Cohn's God of the Oppressed has been deeply, deeply formative for me um, and helps, I mean, he just helped me ask better questions, right? Ask that. better theological questions. Um, and so I know a lot of people today, like right now, it's very, I think the most widespread red book is uh, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, which is a beautiful, it's a different kind of book, right? It's just, it's beautifully written. It's it's a little bit more accessible, I think, than maybe God of the Press was. Yeah. But but I think that the kind of questions that um, Cohn asked um, teaches you how to think theologically from the underside in a, in a really powerful way that I think is really important for for our moment um, ongoing. And so, yeah, that, that would be um, the person, um, but all Cohn's works are helpful. Um, and again, like I, I, I dialogue with a lot of folks broadly. And so I, I always have, there's always like a theological conversation going on in my head, right. With these different folks and right. uh, finding folks that have good, healthy tension um, that can help me um, think about what does it mean to not only be a better follower of Jesus, but how to love well, how to seek liberation, how to be uh, nonviolent and resist and struggle um, for a better world. What gives you hope? What gives me hope? I think that for me, what gives me hope is um, when I see it embodied in others, right? Um, when people embody hope, that is to say, um, when my friends from the community show up and we're collaborating together on the ground, that it's not just me there, right? Yes. Um, um, because in some ways, like what people need is not just good ideas. Um, they need to see something lived out. And so it's one thing to say Jesus is our hope, but if it's not lived out in some ways, then it's meaningless and there's nothing powerful about it. It's precisely at the moment when people actually embody the story of Jesus, make the story of Jesus visible for their neighbors, right? Make the reign of God visible for their neighbors, where God's dream actually seems like a possibility, right? Then all of a sudden, um, that certainly encourages me that often that it, it, it affirms my Christian hope in what can be and, and allows me to continue to hunger and thirst and struggle for that other world, right? The new world coming that God is, uh, God is going to bring. And so for me, um, my neighbors, the concrete embodiment and enfleshment of Christian hope by living it out. And hopefully my, my hope then is that, that I also do that and offer that for others as well. Yeah. Um, this kind of goes back to something really quickly here that I meant to ask earlier, but with regard to this iteration of um, the movement for civil rights, a lot of people have also said that, you know, in the 50s and 60s, church and Christianity had such a massive role to play in movement and organizing. How do you see that today? Yeah, I mean, obviously the white church didn't play a major role in that, right? So, um, but certainly you couldn't have had the 50s and 60s movement without the black church as a part of it. At the same time, a lot of the black church was not participating in it too, right? So let's not imagine that all black churches were, you know, had their hand to the plow. They're just not true. Uh, so there's always been a spectrum. I think that Lincoln Mamiya's description of the black church in terms of the the prophetic and priestly spectrum, right, is really helpful to understand. And I think that that's alive and well today, um, that um, their argument was that all Black churches have some of the priestly and the prophetic, right? That was their argument. Yeah. Um, but that certainly that some lean more towards the priestly, that is more pastoral care, spirituality, or that kind of stuff, and some more prophetic, and by that they mean justice-oriented, um, working in their communities, um, and I think that that was true during King's Day, and that's true today. I would say it's tough. I mean, there was a lot of conversation, um, especially after, I don't know if you saw Gates, um, his Black Church documentary on PBS. Um, Not yet, well, but it's, it's on the list. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's worth checking out. Yeah. Um, the one critique I would have towards how, how he wraps it up, my one critique would be is um, he he tells a story of despair, right? At the end, you know, the black church, it's lost its its way. It's no longer for justice and black lives matter, you know, and all that stuff. And that's kind of how he narrates it. But what's ironic, which I think hopefully people will pick up on is 
he's all the people or not all the people, but most of the pastors that he's interviewing don't actually embody that. There, I mean, he has Otis Moss III and Tracy Blackman and all these other folks. What? And look, granted, like I get that not everyone is engaged in that way. So we've got to have this complex story. But I, I guess I would say is the only thing I would add is that it's always been messy. And yes, there are churches that are not engaged. But what I've been seeing is that I've actually noticed Black conservative churches that I know that have never been engaged, that suddenly they're out, they're marching, right? They're they're rallying their people. They got you got conservative, black conservative evangelicals who actually who are distancing their from the label evangelical altogether. Um, folks leaving the SBC. Um, you got a whole bunch of things happening and more black Christians. I mean, so when I was writing Trouble I've seen, people are, oh, that's Drew's the race guy, right? Uh, he's the, you know. Now, all of a sudden, everybody's, it's like, it's a, it's a growing conversation in the black church. The black churches that are not engaging this are dying because black, young black people are walking with their feet, right? And black churches that are engaging are actually doing very well right now. So there's this complicated story. Yes, the black church is struggling right now. I'm not going to water down that either. Um, But there's also some really healthy things happening and some shifts and movements happening in the midst of our moment. Um, so I would just want to nuance this story. Maybe that's a better way to get at it. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because several of the marches that I attended over the summer last year were, to my surprise, held by more conservative black churches. And but but I could see that tension and the shift and the change. And yeah, that's really interesting that you mentioned. People are finding their way. People are finding yeah. their way. And I'm not gonna pretend like, you know. Some of these churches, they're still like patriarchal and won't let women oh participate boy. in leadership and stuff like that. And so there's there's some stuff that they've got to work out still, right? And I'm not going to pretend like <laughs> like everything, like the reign of God has just, you know, over. but nonetheless, there's some shifts. Yeah. And I think that it's that journey of understanding Jesus's relationship and desire for justice can open up in a whole variety of ways, I think. And so I want to discount um, the possibility of, of deeper transformation as they go on the yeah. journey either. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people follow you? Yeah, you can you find and me. You and buy yeah. your stuff and, you know, all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that. So, so obviously, both of my books, Trouble I've Seen and Who Will Be a Witness, are available anywhere books are sold. You can, for Who Will Be a Witness, there's actually an audiobook as well. So, I'm excited about that. I actually did the recording. Um, of course, again, you can to find that us. And highlighting the book. And, oh. yeah. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's good. Um, and of course, obviously, Inverse Podcast. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram, D-R-U-H-E-R-T. And I also got a Facebook page. And um, once, in fact, um, my schedule is starting to fill up. So once um, pandemic shuts down, at least people are uh, anticipating me traveling again. Yay. So um, I'll be starting in the fall. I'll be, um, uh, you know, assuming all things are open as I imagine that I'll be traveling again. And so you might find me some place in your community as well. Are you coming to Detroit anytime? You know, I've never been invited to Detroit, you know, so if you can make that happen, I would be glad to, you know, Chicago I've done and I've Indiana and some other places around the Midwest and stuff, but I don't think I've ever been invited to Detroit. Yeah. You need to change that. Um, Dr. Drew Hart, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you, Jen.